Chapter One of Fifty Years Ago by Walter Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gary Clayton. Great Britain, Ireland, and the Colonies. I propose to set before my readers a picture of the country as it was when Queen Victoria, God save the Queen, ascended the throne, now fifty years ago and more. It will be a picture of a time so utterly passed away and vanished that a young man can hardly understand it. I, who am no longer, unhappily, quite so young as some, and whose babyhood heard the canon of the coronation, can partly understand this time, because in many respects, and especially in the manners of the middle class, customs and habits which went out of fashion in London lingered in the country towns, and formed part of my own early experiences. In the year 1837, I shall repeat this remark several times, because I wish to impress the fact upon everybody, we were still, to all intents and purposes, in the 18th century. As yet the country was untouched by that American influence which is now filling all peoples with new ideas. Rank was still held in the ancient reverence. Religion was still that of the 18th century church. The rights of labor were not yet recognized. There were no trades unions. There were no railways to speak of. Nobody traveled except the rich. Their own country was unknown to the people. The majority of country people could not read or write. The good old discipline of Father Stick and his children, Cat of Nine Tails, Rope's End, Strap, Birch, Farrell, and Cane, was wholesomely maintained. Landlords, manufacturers, and employers of all kinds did what they pleased with their own. And the blue ribbon was unheard of. There were still some fiery spirits in whose breast lingered the ideas of the French Revolution, and the Chartists were already beginning to run their course. Beneath the surface there was discontent, which sometimes bubbled up. But freedom of speech was limited, and if the sovereign people had then ventured to hold a meeting in Trafalgar Square, that meeting would have been dispersed in a very swift and surprising manner. The Reform Act had been passed, it is true, but as yet had produced little effect. Elections were carried by open bribery. The civil service was full of great men's nominees. The church was devoured by pluralists. There were no competitive examinations. The perpetual pensions were many and fat. And for the younger sons and their progeny, the state was provided with any number of sinecures. How men contrive to live and to be cheerful in this state of things one knows not. But really, I think it made very little apparent difference to their happiness that this country was crammed full of abuses, and that the ship of state, to outsiders, seemed as if she were about to capsize and founder. This is to be a short chapter of figures. Figures mean very little unless they can be used for purposes of comparison. When, for instance, one reads that in the census of 1831, the population of Great Britain was 16,539,318, the fact has little significance except when compared with the census of 1881, 
which shows that the population of the country had increased in 50 years from 16 millions to 24 millions. And again, one knows not whether to rejoice or to weep over this fact until it has been ascertained how the condition of these millions has changed for better or for worse, and whether the outlook for the future, if in the next 50 years, 24 become 36, is hopeful or no. Next, when one reads that the population of Ireland was then 7 millions and three quarters, and is now less than 5 millions, and further that one Irishman in three was always next door to starving, and that the relative importance of Ireland to Great Britain was then as one to two, and is now as one to five, one naturally congratulates Ireland on getting more elbow room and Great Britain on the relative decrease in Irish power to do the larger island an injury. The Army and Navy together in 1831 contained no more than 277,017 men, or half their present number. But then the proportion of the English military strength to the French was much nearer one of equality. The relief of the poor in 1831 absorbed 6,875,552 pounds, but this sum in 1844 had dropped to 4,976,090 pounds, the savings of 2 millions being due to the new poor law. The stream of emigration had hardly yet begun to flow. Witness the following figures. The number of emigrants in 1820 was 18,984. The number of emigrants in 1825 was 8,860. The number of emigrants in 1832 was 103,311. The number of emigrants in 1837 was 72,034. It was not until 1841 that the great flow of emigrants began in the direction of New Zealand and Australia. The emigrants of 1832 chiefly went to Canada, and as yet the United States were practically unaffected by the rush from the old countries. The population of the great towns has for the most part doubled itself in the last 50 years. London had then a million and a half. Liverpool, 200,000, Manchester, 250,000, Glasgow, 250,000, Birmingham, 150,000, Leeds, 140,000, and Bristol, 120,000. Penal settlements were still flourishing. Between 1825 and 1840, when they were suppressed, 48,712 convicts were sent out to Sydney. As regards traveling, the fastest rate along the high roads was 10 miles an hour. There were 54 four-horse mail coaches in England, and 49 two-horse mails. In Ireland, there were 30 four-horse coaches, and 10 in Scotland. There were 3,026 stagecoaches in the country, of which 1,507 started from London. There were already 668 British steamers afloat, though the penny steamboat did not as yet ply upon the river. 
heavy goods traveled by the canals and navigable rivers, of which there were 4,000 in Great Britain. The hackney coach, with its pair of horses, lumbered slowly along the street. The cabriolet was the light vehicle for rapid conveyance, but it was not popular. The omnibus had only recently been introduced by Mr. Schillibier, and there were no handsome cabs. There was a two-penny post in London, but no penny post as yet. There was no book post, no parcel post, no London Parcels Delivery Company. If you wanted to send a parcel to anywhere in the country, you confided it to the guard of the coach. If to a town address, there were street messengers and the cads about these stagecoach stations. There were no telegraphs, no telephones, no commissionaires. Fifty years ago the great railways were all begun, but not one of them was completed. A map published in the Athenaeum of January 23, 1836, shows the state of the railways at that date. The line between Liverpool and Manchester was opened in September 1830. In 1836, it was carrying 450,000 passengers in the year and paying a dividend of 9%. The line between Carlisle and Newcastle was very nearly completed. That between Leeds and Selby was opened in 1834. There were many short lines in the coal and mining districts, and little bits of the great lines were already completed. The London and Greenwich line was begun in 1834 and opened in 1837. There were in progress the London and Birmingham, the Birmingham, Stratford and Warrington, the Great Western as far as Bath and Bristol, and the London and Southampton passing through Basingstoke. It is amazing to think that Portsmouth, the chief naval port and place of embarkation for troops, was left out altogether. There were also a great many lines projected, which afterwards settled down into the present great trunk lines. As they were projected in 1836, instead of Great Northern, Northwestern, and Great Eastern, we should have had one line passing through Saffron Walden, Cambridge, Peterborough, Lincoln, York, Appleby, and Carlisle, with another from London to Colchester, Ipswich, Northwich, and Yarmouth. There was also a projected continuation of the GWR line from Bristol to Exeter, and three or four projected lines to Brighton and Dover. The writer of the article on the subject in the Athenaeum of that date, January 23, 1836, considers that when these lines are completed, letters and passengers will be conveyed from London to Liverpool in ten hours. Quote, little attention, unquote, he says, quote, has yet been given to calculate the effects which must result from the establishment throughout the kingdom of great lines of intercourse traversed at a speed of twenty miles an hour. End quote. Unfortunately, he had no confidence in himself as a prophet, or we might have had some curious and interesting forecasts. As regards the extent of the British Empire, there has been very little contraction and an enormous extension. We have given up the Ionian Islands to gratify the sentiment of Mr. Gladstone, 
and we have acquired Cyprus, which may perhaps prove of use. We have taken possession of Aden, at the mouth of the Red Sea. In Hindustan, which in 1837 was still partially ruled by a number of native princes, the flag of Great Britain now reigns supreme. The whole of Burma is now British Burma. The little island of Hong Kong, which hardly appears in Aerosmith's Atlas of 1840, is now a stronghold of the British Empire. Borneo, then wholly unknown, now belongs partially to us. New Guinea is partly ours. Fiji is ours. For the greatest change of all, however, we must look at the maps of Australia and New Zealand. In the former, even the coast had not been completely surveyed. Melbourne was as yet but a little unimportant township. Between Melbourne and Botany Bay there was not a single village, settlement, or plantation. It was not until the year 1851, only 36 years ago, that Port Phillip was separated from New South Wales and created an independent colony under the name of Victoria, and for a few years it was a very rowdy and noisy colony indeed. In New South Wales, the population of which was about 150,000, convicts were still sent out. In the year 1840, when the transportation ceased, 21,000 convicts were assigned to private service. There were in Sydney many men, ex-convicts, who had raised themselves to wealth. Society was divided by a hard line, not to be crossed in that generation by those on the one side whose antecedents were honorable, and those on the other who had served their time. Tasmania was also still a penal colony and apparently a place where the convicts did not do so well as in new south wales queensland as a separate colony was not yet in existence though brisbane had been begun tropical australia was wholly unsettled western australia was what it still is a poor and thinly settled country the map of new zealand it was not important enough to have a map all to itself shows the coastline imperfectly surveyed, and not a single town or English settlement upon it. Fifty years ago that great colony was not yet even founded. The first serious settlement was made in 1839, when a patch of land at Port Nicholson in Cook Strait was bought from the natives for the first party of settlers sent out by the recently established New Zealand Company. In North America, the whole of the Northwest Territory, including Manitoba, Muskoka, British Columbia, and Vancouver's Island, was left to Indians, trappers, buffaloes, bears, and rattlesnakes. South Africa shows the Cape Colony and nothing else. Natal, Orange Free State, the Transvaal, Bequanaland, Griqualand, Zululand are all part of the great undiscovered continent. Considering that all these lands have now been opened up and settled, so that where was formerly a hundred square miles of forest and prairie, there is now the same area covered with plantations, towns, and farms, it will be understood that the British Empire has been increased not only in area, but in wealth, strength, 
and resources to an extent which would have been considered incredible fifty years ago it is in fact just the difference between owning a barren heath and owning a cultivated farm the british empire in eighteen thirty seven contained millions of square miles of barren heath and wild forest which are now settled land and smiling plantations it boasted of vast countries with hardly a single european in them which are now filled with english towns in eighteen thirty seven prophets foretold the speedy downfall of an empire which could no longer defend her vast territories these territories can now defend themselves it may be that we shall have to fight for empire but the longer the day of battle is put off the better it will be for england and the greater will be her might to carry on that war there are now scattered over the whole of the british empire fifty millions of people speaking the anglo-saxon tongue in fifty years time there will be two hundred millions in great britain ireland australia africa asia new zealand and the isles with another two hundred millions in the states if the english-speaking races should decide to unite in a vast confederacy all the other powers on the earth combined will not be able to do them an injury perhaps after this life we shall be allowed to see what goes on in the world if so there is joy in store for the briton if not we have been born too soon next to the extension and development of the empire comes the opening up of new countries we have rescued since the year eighteen thirty seven the third part of africa from darkness we have found the sources of the nile we have traced the great river congo from its source to its mouth we have explored the whole of southern africa we have rediscovered the great african lakes which were known to the jesuits in the seventeenth century in australia we have crossed and recrossed the continent the whole of north america has been torn from the red indians and is now settled in almost every part if the progress of great britain has been great that of the united states has been amazing along the pacific shore where were fifty years ago sand and rock and snow where formerly the sluggish mexican kept his ranch and the red indian hunted the buffalo great towns in american states now flourish arkansas and missouri were frontier western states michigan was almost without settlers chicago was a little place otherwise called fort dearborn the population of the states was still except for the negroes and a few descendants of germans dutch and swedes chiefly of pure british descent as yet there were in america few irish germans except in pennsylvania norwegians or italians yet the people much more than now our cousins held little friendly feeling towards the mother country and lacked the kindly sentiment which has grown up of late years they were quite out of touch with us strangers to us and yet speaking our tongue reading our literature and governed by our laws as soon as the battle of waterloo was fairly fought and napoleon put away at st helena the continental professors historians political students and journalists all began with one accord to prophesy the approaching downfall of great britain which some affected to deplore 
and others regarded with complacency. Everything conspired, it was evident, not only to bring about this decline, but also to accelerate it. The parallel of Carthage, England has always been set up as the second Carthage, was freely exhibited, especially in those countries which felt themselves called upon and qualified to play the part of Rome. It was pointed out that there was the dreadful dead weight of Ireland with its incurable poverty and discontent, the approaching decay of trade, which could be only, in the opinion of these keen-sighted philosophers, a matter of a few years, the enormous weight of the national debt, the ruined manufacturers, the wasteful expenditure of the government in every branch, the corrupting influence of the poor laws, the stain of slavery, the restrictions of commerce, the intolerance of the church, the narrowness and prejudice of the universities, the ignorance of the people, their drinking habits, the vastness of the empire. These causes, together with discontent, chartism, republicanism, atheism, in fact all the disagreeableisms, left no doubt whatever that England was doomed. Foreigners, in fact, not yet recovered from the extraordinary spectacle of Great Britain's long duel with France and a successful termination, prophesied what they partially hoped out of envy and jealousy, and partly feared from self-interest. Therefore the politicians and professors were always looking at this country, writing about it, watching it, visiting it. Now, there could be no doubt, none of these changes and dangers could be denied. The factories were choked with excessive production. Poverty stalked through the country. The towns were filled with ruined women. The streets were cumbered with drunken men. The children were growing up in ignorance and neglect inconceivable. What could come of all this but ruin? Even, and this was the most wonderful and incredible thing to those who do not understand how long a Briton will go on enduring wrongs and suffering anomalies, the very House of Commons in this boasted land of freedom did not represent half the people. Seats were openly bought and sold. Others were filled with nominees of the great men who owned them. What could possibly follow but ruin, swift and hopeless ruin? What, indeed? Prophets of disaster always omit one or two important elements in their calculations, and it is through these gaps that the people basely wriggle instead of fulfilling prophecy as they ought to do. For instance, there is the recuperative power of man, and there is his individuality. He may be full of moral disease, yet such is his excellent constitution that he presently recovers. He shakes off his evil habits as he shakes the snow off his shoulders, and goes on an altered creature. Again, the mass of men may be in heavy case, but the individual man is patient. He has strength to suffer and endure until he can pull through the worst. He has patience to wait for better times. Difficulties only call forth his ingenuity and his resource. Disaster stiffens his back. Danger finds him brave. Always, to the prophet who knows not man, the case is hopeless. Always, to one who considers that by gazing into the looking-glass, especially immediately before or after his morning bath, 
he may perceive his brother as well as himself. Things are hopeful. My brother, have things at your worst ever been, morally, so bad with you that you have despaired of recovery, seeing that you had only to resolve and you were cured? Have you ever reflected that while, to the outside world, to your maiden aunts and to your female cousins, you were most certainly drifting to a moral wreck and material ruin, you have gone about the world with a hopeful heart, feeling that the future was in your own grasp. Even now the outlook of the whole world is truly dark, and the clouds are lowering. Yet surely the outlook was darker, the clouds were blacker, fifty years ago. Read Carlyle's Past and Present, and compare. There may be other dangers before us of which we then suspected nothing. But if we still preserve the qualities which enabled us to stand up, almost alone, against the colossal force of Napoleon, with Europe at his back, and which carried us through the terrible troubles which followed the war, we surely need not despair. End of chapter 1